Welcome to the first podcast in a new series by Explore History Limited. I'm Dr. Scott McLean and I will be taking you on this little journey. In this podcast, The Medieval Knight, Chivalry and the Modern World, we'll be exploring all sorts of things to do with all things medieval. And then we're going to take that and look at the development of the concept of chivalry and use this examination to explain how the medieval concept of chivalry and knighthood in general has influenced and continues to influence our world today. From the political use of chivalric ideals by the Tudors to 17th and 18th century dueling, World War I and World War II propaganda, to such films as Star Wars, Indiana Jones and others, the medieval knight and the chivalric code he is associated with continues to both fascinate and influence modern culture. I hope you enjoyed this little journey. Let's get started. So I thought it best to start off with just a few simple questions, maybe to get you thinking as we move forward. And the first one is simply, why study the medieval period? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Why should we be interested? Well, I think there's some very simple and some very complex reasons to do this. One, we see a lot of continuity from the Middle Ages to, you know, through the Renaissance and the Reformation and into our own era. So even though it is, you know, 500 and more years ago, um, we still have some things that are they're common to us. That brings us to the next thing. I think we should study the medieval period because of its contributions to political, social, and cultural spheres, which medieval men and women made to the modern world. Um, there is a very strong connection that we have, and many people don't realize that, but so many things that were developed in the Middle Ages have affected us today, and we're still using today. Things like Parliament, um, all sorts of things. Also, the medieval period is rich in visual symbolism. There's lots of colorful personalities, a rich literature, heroic battles, all sorts of things that can capture people's attention. The very nature of the Middle Ages demands a multicultural and interdisciplinary approach. It should therefore appeal to a broad spectrum of people. It's a great thing to research. You can come at it from all different angles. And in some cases, the information is limited. The kind of source material we have is limited. But at the same time, this was growing, particularly after the late 11th century. Um, we see more and more documentary evidence coming out. But also, we can bring in archaeology and other ways of looking at the Middle Ages, and it becomes very rich indeed. And finally, and something that's going to form a significant part of this um, podcast, is that the medieval period is very much a part of modern popular culture that it has influenced us to the present day. There's a whole host of films and novels, video games, internet sites, all sorts of things, even podcasts related to this. And so there is a real fascination. And for that reason, I think we really do need to question what exactly was medieval history? What was the role of the medieval knight? How did they emerge? And why do we have this very significant concept of chivalry that we associate with it? So this brings me to my next question. What do you associate with the term chivalry? Well, many people, when they think of chivalry, they think, first of all, of medieval knights. Armored knights on horseback. Maybe martial adventures in strange lands, quests, castles, beautiful damsels in distress, honor and a particular type of behavior. Maybe it's just generally medieval history or something else. So there's lots that we associate. But I think to understand it, we have to first ask why. Like, what is it that we associate? Why is it that we associate these things with the role of the medieval knight? And so the best place to start, I think, is with a definition. I'd say a simple definition, but there isn't one for chivalry. 
So how do we define chivalry? Well, the Free Dictionary Online says this, the medieval system, principles and customs of knighthood, the qualities idealized by knighthood, such as bravery, courtesy, honor, and gallantry toward women, a manifestation of any of these qualities, and a group of knights or gallant gentlemen. The Oxford English Dictionary has this to say of chivalry, the medieval knightly system with its religious, moral, and social code, the age of chivalry. The combination of qualities expected of an ideal knight, namely courage, honor, courtesy, justice, readiness to help the weak, tales of chivalry and knightly deeds. Courteous behavior, especially that of a man towards women. An internet site called Chivalry Reimagined has this to say, chivalry, gallantry, courtesy, and honor. The noble qualities a knight who's supposed to have, such as courage and a readiness to help the weak. The demonstration of any of these qualities. That is a precise definition to be sure, but it does leave some unanswered questions. Let's consider a different approach. From the Ten Commandments of the Bible to the Eightfold Path of Zen to all I really need to know I learned in kindergarten, people throughout history have searched for a way to define and quantify admirable behavior. The Code of Chivalry is at its heart simply a handbook for good conduct. But chivalry was not a mandate from the powerful to the downtrodden, nor directive from the chosen unto the masses. It was a set of limitations which the strong and mighty placed upon themselves with the realization that setting a good example sends a message which is far more powerful than any words on paper. Today we're not too different from those knights in the Middle Ages. We have a great deal of wealth and resources and freedom at our disposal, and we can use or misuse them in nearly any way we like. Perhaps that's why people are finding the concept of chivalry so relevant to modern life. Perhaps like those knights in shining armor hundreds of years ago, we want to experience the satisfaction of knowing that we have championed the right causes and embraced the right principles, not because we were told to do so, but simply because we have chosen to follow that path. In short, that's what chivalry is, a choice. The choice to do the right things for the right reasons at the right times. And that's a definition that even your social studies teacher probably would have approved of. So I quite like that explanation by the online chivalry website. Um, a lot of interesting things they bring up there, which we're going to touch upon. What it does tell us, I think, in part, when you look at all of them, is that chivalry is a difficult concept to define. Part of the problem is that it has been used differently at different times and been used in a variety of contexts. Early on, it often was used simply to describe a body of heavily armed horsemen, the French chevaliers. Sometimes it is referred to as an order, an estate, or social class, the warrior class whose function was to protect the kingdom and the church. At other times, it was used to encapsulate a code of values, generally in opposition to the warrior class, because, let's face it, their behavior was generally the antithesis of chivalry. Regardless of how it has been used, the term cannot be divorced from the world of the knight, the warrior mounted on horseback. It also cannot be separated from the aristocracy as knights were men of high standing. From the 12th century, during the height of the Crusades, we see the term increasingly carrying ethical and religious overturns. From the 12th century, during the height of the Crusades, we see the term increasingly carrying ethical and religious overtones. Literature has played an important role in shaping the concept of chivalry, as early on romantic writers associated chivalry with certain virtues, generosity, courtesy, loyalty, courage, and charity, among others. But does literature reflect reality? 
In a world filled with conflict where life was short and often brutal, war common and religious faith used to justify acts of violence, can we truly believe that knights behaved in a chivalrous fashion? According to Ramon Lull, author of the Libre del Order de Cavalleria, written in the late 13th century, the duties of the knight were considerable. 1. To defend the faith of Christ against unbelievers. 2. To defend his temporal Lord. 3. Protect the weak, women, widows, and orphans. 4. They should regularly exercise by hunting wild beasts and by taking part in jousts and tournaments. 5. They should help the king maintain order. 6. They must be ready to defend the region and pursue criminals. 7. He should school himself in wisdom, charity, and loyalty, and above all, courage. And 8. He must prize honor before all and eschew pride, idleness, lechery, and treason. So according to law, the ideal knight should be a man courteous and nobly spoken, well-clad, one who holds open house within the limits of his means. For Geoffrey de Charny, writing in the mid-14th century, chivalry extended beyond those dubbed a knight to any men-at-arms that were in possession of the right qualities. For de Charny, there were different grades of chivalric activity. There were the knights who took part in jousting, those who took part in tournaments, those that were distinguished in war, and special recognition for those that distinguished themselves in foreign lands. The highest, though, he gives to those who fight and attribute their achievements to the glory of God and the Virgin Mary. In other words, those that take part in crusade. For Dechani, by the 14th century, chivalry had become a Christian discipline, orientated towards man's highest goal, salvation. He would write, Chivalry is a means of salvation. He who takes arms for just purpose will save his soul, be it in his Lord's cause or in defense of the weak, or to save his own honor and heritage or against the infidel. What we can take from this is that the concept of chivalry was changing, evolving to suit the changing times. By the 14th, 15th centuries, it had become an ethos which combined martial, aristocratic, and Christian elements together. We get a good sense of this growing connection between chivalry and religion when we look at a number of the different sources, but I'll quote from one of my favorites. This was a 15th century document written in the 1430s by Gutierrez Diaz de Gámez in a work called The Unconquered Knight, a chronicle of the deeds of Don Peronino. In it, de Gámez has this to say about the connection between religion and chivalry. I quote, Our Lord God has three orders of knighthood. The first is the order of the angels who fought against Lucifer when he would have exalted himself and said, I will set my seat on the side of the north wind and I will be the equal of the Most High. They fought against him and vanquished him, him and all his ministers, and hurled them from the high seat of glory into the depths of the abyss. They ever wage war against him in our defense. They bear the banner of the living God. Of this chivalry is St. Michael chief, archangel and defender of the Church of God. Our Lord God hath a second order of knighthood, of the martyrs who have died for the holy Catholic faith, who have conquered the pomps, the temptations, the threats of the world, the flesh and the devil, who have suffered many torments and have died cruel deaths serving Jesus Christ and strengthening the faith. They have been victorious and have attained the palm of victory and of martyrdom. Of these, Jesus Christ has said, To the victor will I give the crown, and for Gerdon shall I make him eat of the tree of life. That is in the paradise of my father. They have won the crown and oriel. The Lord God has likewise other knights who are the good kings of the earth, just, upright, and God-fearing, and the good knights 
who vowed to defend and protect our mother and the church and the holy Catholic faith, the honor of their king and of the realm. For their recompense are those heavenly seats prepared for them in glory, that Lucifer and the evil angels, these seats were lost through pride, and it is by humility and victory that they are won by this order of knighthood of the good defenders. It has for head the Holy Virgin St. Mary, with all the saints and angels of the glory of paradise. Now is it fitting that I should tell you what it is to be a knight? Whence comes this name of knight, that manner of man a knight should be to have a right to be called a knight? what profit the good knight is to the country. So we see from this, he's making a very strong argument for this connection between chivalry and religion. And this is something that was emerging in the 12th and 13th centuries. And by you know, the 14th, 15th centuries, it's very much sort of enshrined in the idea. Yet we've got this strong connection with the Crusades and Christianity, but it still remains an incredibly difficult concept to define. This is admitted by Nigel Saul in For Honor and Fame, Chivalry in England, 1066 to 1500. I'll just read you a quote from this very good book uh, where I think he really sums up the challenges of trying to define chivalry. Yet, if we recognize chivalry when we see it, it is tantalizingly hard to define precisely. Indeed, it is tempting to say that it is almost beyond definition. Medieval chivalry was more an outlook than a doctrine more a lifestyle than an explicit ethical code. It embraced both ideology and social practice. Among the qualities central to it were loyalty, generosity, dedication, courage, and courtesy, qualities which were esteemed by the military class which contemporaries believe the ideal knight should possess. Chivalry meant different things to different people. Like beauty, it was found in the eye of the beholder. For the heralds whose primary task was to recognize coats of arms, its essence lay in the display of armorial charges on a shield, in the attesting of ancestral descent through the multiplication of quarterly. For the clergy, whose concern was to direct knighthood to the church's own ends, it was more a religious vocation, the responsibility of knights to wage war in a just cause, preeminently the recovery of the holy places from the infidel. For legis, whose goal was to bring order to the brutal realities of war, it was a legal construct intended to curb military excess, a set of moral guidelines to distinguish proper behavior from improper. For the writers of romances, lovers of stories, but also moral instructors, it was about the attainment of virtue through ennobling feats of arms to win the favor of a lady. For others, again the knights themselves, it was about what Sir Thomas Mallory in the 15th century called deeds, full actual, fighting on horseback, jousting in tournament lists, and the achievement of manliness through prowess. For the intellectuals and theorists whose aim was making sense of human society, chivalry, chivalry in French, was a way to describe the military and aristocratic elite, a social order, the second estate of God's creation. So what we can take from all of this, I think, is that, one, its significance should not be underestimated, as chivalry served a variety of purposes in medieval society. Some have argued that it acted as a break on the behavior of the warrior class. It also provided an element of cohesion between the higher nobility and those further down the social scale, a set of values and ideals to be followed and emulated. Why this happened and why it is of significance is something that we're going to be exploring through the coming episodes of this podcast. Now I'd like to finish off this first episode with another brief reading but from uh, Gutierrez Diaz de Gamas, The Unconquered Knight, because this one, I think, really sums it up for me. 
and as uh, one of my favorite quotes from this period. Again, this document uh, was written in the 1430s, 1440s. He was writing it, and um, he gives us all kinds of insights into his ideas about what chivalry actually meant. So in this quote, I think he really gets to the heart of the issue and something I want to focus on as we move forward. To form the estate of nobles, the people of the law had one way, and the Gentiles another. The Gentiles sought for a way to choose out men for war. They deliberated after this manner, saying, Let us take into battle those who practice the mechanic arts, such as stonecutters, carpenters, and smiths, who are accustomed to strike great blows, to break hard stones, to split hard wood, with great strength to soften iron, which is very hard. Let us set them to the front in our battles. They will strike mightily and give hard blows, and with them shall we conquer our enemies. Thus did they, and armed them well, and sent them into the fray. And some were stifled in their armor, and some lost their strength through fear, and some took to flight, so that all their hosts were brought to defeat. Then the patriarchs said that it had been ill-planned. Rather should they send the butchers, who were cruel and accustomed to shedding blood without pity, men who slaughtered great bulls and strong beasts. They will strike without mercy and without fear, will avenge us upon our adversaries. They armed them well and sent them into the forefront of the battle. But when they were there, their hearts failed them. They also took to flight. They did not fall out as they had thought, but rather were they undone by this council. There were also men who had fought well and who had not been among the chosen. Then the patriarchs decided, when next they went into battle, to set men on the heights who might see how the battle went, and might recognize those who fought with a good heart and struck good blows, and gave not in to fear, and dreaded not death, but stood steadfast. Then when the battle was over, they took those men, gathered them together apart, and rendered them thanks and great honor, for they had fought so well, and they formed them into a host apart, but bade them do not work but this, to maintain their arms and tend their horses, that all their endeavors should be in those matters. To maintain them, a tax was levied. It was found that th this institution was sound and good, all the people honored and loved them. They named them Omes de Bien, good men, the which gave them heart to apply themselves to their work, and they became the more cunning therein. When it befell that one of them died in battle, men made great mourning, took his children and brought them up in great honor, and gave them all that had been their fathers, making them follow the same way of life as their father had followed, granting to them and their mother the same privileges that the father had enjoyed. And they called them Fios de Bien, and continued to call them so. Afterwards, the name was changed, and they were called Fios Dalgo, which likewise means son of a good man, son of a good house, born of those who ever were good and did good. So what we have here in this quote by de Gamas is kind of an explanation of how the medieval knight emerges. But what I really like out of this, what really strikes me and is most fascinating, is that, that little description of how they chose what kind of individual could be a knight. Why would you give somebody this special title, this special privilege in society? And they think, let's send out people, you know, men that are used to fighting. So carpenters and, you know, others that are, you know, sort of big burly individuals, they, they've got strong arms, they should be able to fight. And they don't, they're unsuccessful. So then they send in the butchers, Here's people that are used to killing for a living. They kill great beasts. They too falter. So what he's really saying here, it's all about what's inside. What makes a knight is those that have courage, that have honor, 
and because of that we should emulate them. We should put them on a pedestal and treat them, you know, as being special. So really holding the knight as something significant in medieval society and something all should look up to. And as we will see, this isn't exactly you know, the most accurate depiction of knights. Um, they were often involved in a lot of the worst behavior. Uh, but in, again, this is in part why the code of chivalry seems to have been so important to try and put a break on some of this bad behavior. Um, and this is something, these, these threads that we're looking at, these different themes, uh, this complexity of the concept of chivalry is something that we will see played upon throughout the centuries, right up to the present day. Something which has had a major influence upon our culture, on society, on the way that we entertain ourselves, the way that we look back to the past, um, how we treat different people. It still is a code, values and ideals that we look up to. And it's certainly something worth exploring further. I hope you've enjoyed this opening uh, podcast. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we will be getting to uh, episode two in the coming weeks. Hopefully you will enjoy it and um, enjoy this exploration into the medieval world and the concept of chivalry.